All right, good morning. Hey, moms, happy Mother's Day. Uh, great to see y'all today. Welcoming Amped, Blend, Roan County down in Bearden. Good morning to y'all. Happy Mother's Day. And uh, what we're going to do is we'll be jumping into Exodus. If you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of a series walking through just the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. And we're going we're gonna to steal something this morning from Netflix. Um, one of the things we've been talking about is uh, that, that we are a storied people, and the way that our culture tells stories now mostly is through video. And uh, this week, I was like, okay, what, what is Netflix story? Like, how long has Netflix been a thing? And so I looked that up, and it, it's existed for more than 20 years. I would never have, ex- uh, have guessed that. I wouldn't have said, oh, yeah, more than 20 years. But it's really just been in the last 10 to 15 years where it has grown exponentially. So that it's now uh, more than a $150 billion company streaming video to more than 190 countries. And some of you are like, I didn't even know there was 190 countries. And it's because we are a story people that a video streaming service like Netflix can be so successful. And one of the things that they tapped into is our need to be connected in a story and to tell the story in a way that from week to week ties us in. And so they came up with a little something called the recap at the beginning of the video so that, so that no matter where you are, you can get up to speed so that you can join in. And so we're going to start today as we jump into Exodus with a little bit of a recap. Because it's important that we understand in any story where we've been before we talk about where we are. And in the book of Exodus so far, what we've seen is God has seen the children of Israel, that they have been in captivity, that God told Abraham that they would be in captivity for more than 400 years, and they have been. And they've been in Egypt in captivity as slaves to the Egyptians, and God has seen them, and he's sent a deliverer. And he has been in a battle, the beginning battle, with the king of Egypt that, that's called Pharaoh. It's not his name, but it's a title. And that king is set to destroy all the men of Israel. And so he's like, okay, we need to get rid of them. There, there can't be a threat. We see the, the people of Israel are so successful that, that they have become a threat to us, and so we're going to destroy them. And so there's a baby who's put into an ark, cast into the Reed Sea, and then delivered out of the sea to the daughter of Pharaoh. And his name is Moses. And as we come to God's story, it's, it's important that we would know that, that, that the biblical authors are foreshadowing frequently things that are going to come in the story. And for those of us who've been going through this series and doing the Live It Out, we're, we're already uh, chapters ahead. We're already way ahead in the story. And we know that, that the children of Israel are led out of captivity through the Reed Sea into the wilderness. And this birth narrative of Moses is already foreshadowing that story. And so Moses, as he grows up in the house of the king, he, he ends up one day, he encounters injustice in the field as an Israelite is being abused by an Egyptian and he ends up taking the life of that Egyptian. He's found out. And as he's found out, it's, it's become apparent that his life is in danger and he has to flee. And so he flees. And, and he 
goes and ends up meeting a guy by the name of Jethro, it says, who's the priest of Midian, and he ends up marrying one of his daughters, and he ends up becoming a shepherd. And that's where we left off last week, that, that Moses was a, a shepherd, and he went to this place called the Mountain of God that's in the region of Horeb. It's also called Sinai, and that's where we left off last week as, as Moses was having an encounter with God through the burning bush. Now, you may not be super familiar with the Bible or super familiar with the book of Exodus, but it's likely you've heard of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And that's where we are going to pick up this week. As we, we see Moses' encounter with God, the God of the Bible, and, and what we're going to look at this week is what God reveals to Moses through his name. So in Moses, at the end, I mean, in chapter 3, he's saying, okay, wait a minute. Why would you send me? What is it about me that you would choose me to go back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites? Why would it be me? And this is what God's response is to him. He said in verse 11, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that, you, that I have sent you, in verse 12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you have your Bible there in, in verse 12, underline that phrase, I will be with you. We didn't underline that last week. If you were here, underline that phrase, I will be with you. So, so he says, why should I? Who am I that I should? And the response isn't, this is who you are, Moses. The response is, this is who I am. And I am going to be with you. What we're going to see this weekend is that Yahweh's power and presence are revealed in his name. Yahweh is the personal name of God. If you've been around Two Rivers for a little bit, we've talked about this, that God has a personal name, and that name is Yahweh. And we're going to talk about what that name means this weekend. Now, in our culture, there's a not a lot in a name. We just pick names we like. I like the sound of that name. And this week, in fact, if you had said, hey, hey, David, what does your name mean? I would have been like, I don't know. And so I didn't really know. I, I, I knew once upon a time I'd been told in the past, but it's, you know, it's not really what I think about. And so I, I actually had to go look up. I wonder what my name means. What, what does it mean? And so I looked it up and it means beloved. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, that's not important that I would know what that name means, but... King David is a really important supporting character in God's story, and it's really important that I would know that King David's name is beloved. That's an important part of God's story. It's right there on the surface. It's not hidden. It's not buried. It's right there. And so when, when God says that David is a man after his own heart, he's already said, hey, the beloved one is after my own heart. That's not an accident in God's story. The biblical authors don't make accidents like that. That's an important thing that we would pick up along the name, along the way. And, and God does the same thing with his name. As we come to the, this, this part of the scripture, the name Yahweh has been used now all through the book. Since Genesis chapter 2, every time that we see the word Lord in small caps, it's the covenant name of God, it's, it's Yahweh. Okay? So all the way from Genesis, this name has been used, but now we come to a point where, where God defines it 
for Moses. And so we're going to pick up in the story in verse 13 where it says, Then Moses said to God, and he's going to ask him the second of five questions that we're going to look at over the coming weeks. The second of five questions, he says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." God's promise to Abraham back in in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis was that that your your descendants will be in captivity for 400 years, and when they leave, they're going to leave with great wealth. And and this is just an aside. It's it's just something that we've seen in this series as, as Pharaoh was interacting with the children of Israel, and he was looking to destroy the men. It was women who were continually defeating him, that they were outsmarting him, that they were the ones who were the main actors in in carrying out the deliverance of Moses. They are the ones who are active in opposing Pharaoh, and that's not an accident in God's story. There's supposed to be an aha here that it it wasn't because of the men that they were plundered. It was because of the women and and the disparity between Pharaoh and the God of the Israelites is made apparent. I don't mean this disrespectful ladies in any way, shape, or form. Even the women can defeat Pharaoh. Doesn't take an army. We don't need an army. The God of the scriptures is not comparable to Pharaoh who believed he was a god. There's no comparison. And so in this interaction, Moses asks a question, and and it's the second question of five questions, and and this still seems like a legitimate question. And, And as Moses asks questions, it really causes the reader to ask questions. So in our mind, as he asks God about his name, maybe all of a sudden, maybe you start wondering, huh, I wonder, did, did Moses know God's name? Was this a roundabout way? For Moses to say, so who are you? Who are you? And, and, and so when I go to them and I say I've been sent, who do I say? Had he heard the name Yahweh? 
There's no reason that he would have. He grew up in the house of the king of Egypt. He was likely very familiar with Egyptian kings. He could tell you probably all about the Egyptian kings. He lived in the house of someone who thought he was an Egyptian king. But did he know the Israelites? Did he know their God? And then you're like, okay, well, did the children of Israel, did they know that their God's name was Yahweh? And the answer to those questions is, we don't know. When we come to the biblical text, there's, there's things that we don't know. And, and there, it's fun for us to think about and speculate, but we just hold on loosely to those things. We don't know. But what do we know? We know that God does answer his question and tells him his name. And in that name, Yahweh, God's, God's covenant name to the children of Israel, that his power and presence are revealed in that name. So what's that mean for a follower of Jesus today? That's been kind of the driving thing that we've gone through this series is um, we spent a whole lot of time so far this year in the book of Ephesians. And as we were in the book of Ephesians, we talked a lot about what is our identity as God's people? And then out of that, what is my uh, identity individually as a follower of Jesus in light of who we are as God's people? We spent a lot of time talking about that identity. And in this series, what we've been talking about is God's identity. We talked about how the book of Exodus is a, a theological narrative. It's revealing things about who God is. There's principles that we're, we're learning about who God is. And then as followers of Jesus, how then do we live in light of who God is? As we come here to, to verse 14, there, there's something here that is probably that you're a little bit familiar with. When, when God says to Moses, I am who I am, and he said to the say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. If you've been around church for, for five minutes, you've likely heard that, 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 that God is known as the great I am. In fact, our worship ministry, they, they know that you all love that song, the great I am. They know that if they want to see all the hands in the air that they're going to put in their worship set, the great I am, and every hand's going to go, whoo, the great I am. They know that. They know that. So it's likely we've heard that. But what's actually being said there? And so um, in your Bible, if you have your Bible, this isn't in your journal, but in your Bible, there's a note there. And, and we don't spend a lot of time talking about Hebrew words, but this one is actually in the note. And it's that, that this name, I am who I am, or I am, is connected to a Hebrew verb. And the Hebrew verb is hayah. It's, it's a verb that means to be. That's what the verb means. So the first person verbal form of to be, and it's translated, I am who I am, because that verb is used two times in the, the first part of verse 14, and then a third time at the end of verse 14. And, it, and it's translated, it says right there in your text, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be is a better way to say that. I will be who I will be. So it's likely that you've heard that. But then it, it changes. And, and so this is the, the first person form. And, and if you've if been a while since you've been to English class like me, I have to look up. I got to go back and say, okay, what's first person? What's second person? What's third person? And the first person form is I. I run, I speak, I read, I, right? And then it changes to the third person form. In verse 15, it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, and that now has become the third person form, and now it gets untranslated in your text, 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This, this third person noun is, is Yahweh. What does it mean? That's the question. What does it mean? Now, I, I know that you are very tired in this series of hearing me say this phrase. Really smart people disagree. Okay? Really smart people who know biblical languages upside down and sideways disagree about what this name means. And so when really smart people disagree, we hold on loosely. And so that's one of the things we're going to do is we're going to hold on loosely. But what we do know is that Yahweh is the personal name of God. And so every time you read that word Lord, it is good to remind yourself that that is not a title. It's a name. It's the covenant name of the God of the children of Israel who becomes Jesus. And we'll talk about that today in the, in the New Testament, that, that it is a personal God. And and here are three ways that we could translate that name. First is, I'm here with you. I will be with you. Second, I am he who causes to be all that is. Third, I will be who I will be. And now you're asking, but which one of those is right? And so I, I want to describe a concept without making it overly complicated. When it comes to definitions, I want to encourage you that we should make a, a, an encyclopedia entry in our brains instead of a dictionary definition. And this is what I mean. Encyclopedias describe things in, in more general terms than dictionaries. And here, it, there are concepts that are revealed about who God is, his character, in his name. And so which one of these is correct? Well, yeah. Because they all are revealing biblical truths. And depending on which direction you're coming from, they could be. They are possible. Now, one of them may be more possible than the others, depending on your view, but, but they're all possible. So some people emphasize God's self-existence, that God exists independent of others, that God is, others point to, God is the creator and sustainer of all. Other people point to that God is unchangeable and always reliable. And another attribute of God people point to is that God is eternally existent. And what we would say, those are all true about the God of the Bible. All of those are true. And so when, when it comes to this case, it does appear that the focus is on presence. And so we're going to go back up to verse 12. And when, when God says to Moses, but I will be with you, he's using the same verb, a hayah there. When he's saying, I will be, it's the same thing that he's saying down below. And the focus is, I'm the God who's with you. I'm the God who was with your forefathers. I was the God who was with Abraham. Abraham. I was the God who was with Isaac. I was the God with Jacob, Jacob who became Israel. I am the God who's with you. God's name is calling people to something. It's calling people to believe God. And so let's talk about what it means to believe God. To believe God is called faith. And faith is, is defined as trust based on the reliability of the one trusted. 
When it comes to faith, often we think that is something that we have. It's our faith. It's something that we hold on to. But faith is defined not by our ability to believe something, but based on the trustworthiness of the person we are trusting. And so faith in God is based on God's character identity, who he is, and the promises he has made. And what we would see here in this story, it's really important that as we're reading ahead to Rivers Church, as we're working through the live it out, we know that God has done this. He did it. The promise that he has made, he, he did it. But he called Moses to believe him before he acted. And that's the invitation of God. Yahweh's name, the name, calls people to faith. It calls people to trust. It calls people to, to outside of their ability to trust in who God is. This is how God still works. It's how God works in the Exodus and how God works today, that, that he calls people to follow him before they know the results. Before they know how the story is going to turn out, before they know the end game, will you trust me? Why? Because I am with you. God is still the God of presence. It's also important that we would know it's a personal name. It's a personal name. Not just God in general. And, and Two Rivers, we've talked about this word Elohim, that, that that word isn't a name. It's a category, and it's used all throughout the Old Testament to, to refer to spiritual beings. Okay, If you watch the Bible Project video on spiritual beings, they talk about that. They didn't make that up. That's just what it is. It's, it's all throughout the scriptures when that word is used. It's talking about spiritual beings. But there's one spiritual being who's over all the spiritual beings. And so every time that that, that word Elohim gets translated as God with a capital G, it's simply because of context. So it's a category and the, the God, the big G God, who's over all the other little G gods, has a personal name, and his personal name is Yahweh. It is a personal name. There are many gods, but there is only one Yahweh. Only one. He's also called the Most High, Elohim. He's the one who's over all. And because God's name is personal. It's revealing that God can be known. And because God is present, it can be God is trusted. He can be known and trusted. He's not some cosmic force far away in a galaxy way, way out there to be unknown. He comes and like, I, I, you can know me. I'm the God who knew Abraham. I'm the God who knew Isaac. And they knew me. I'm the God who knew Jacob. And they knew me. And he wasn't absent as the, as the children of Israel spent 400 years in captivity, right? Well, it wasn't really 400 years in captivity. They spent 400 years in Egypt. Over time, they, they went into slavery. And he wasn't absent then either when maybe we read into the story that he was absent. He's saying, nope, I'm still the God of the children of Israel. And he says, I've seen them. I've seen what's been going on with them. And I make a promise to them that I will bring them out of the affliction in Egypt. God will be known and trusted. Why? Because God is present and active with his people. God is present and active with his people. That's true here in the story of Exodus. And that's true today. 
And as, as we've been working our way through the Exodus, here's something that I want to point you to, that, that as God delivered or saved the children of Israel out of the bondage or slavery that they were in Egypt, at what point did he save them? Was it before he gave them the covenant that we refer to as the law, or was it after? And what we read in the story is, God saved the children of Israel before he gave them the covenant or the law. It's important that we would know that. Because there's a misconception that God saved people in the Old Testament through the law. And God saved the children of Israel out of captivity before the law. The law was simply how to live in right relationship or in covenant with the God who had saved them. And yeah, they, they mess it up. We're going to read about that this week. They, they mess it all up. Or in, actually, in another week, they mess it all up. But it's not, this is how you'll be saved. It's because you are saved, this is how you shall live. And, and that's what God has demonstrated is he's, he's present. He's the God of, of saving. That's what he does. He's the God who's going to reach out and, and bring them to himself, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is. It's based on the character of God. Now, in this series, we've, we've made this phrase, but we're going to link it all together. And that is that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And, and what we're going to do is uh, just take a minute to, to link it together. And this is no way, shape, or form all the links. This is just one stream or actually two streams of links that we could actually say that. Now, we've talked about already how the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And as he, as he is born, John wants us to connect the word, the word, the living word of God to Jesus. He wants us to, to make that connection, and he wants us to see that, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he's explicit in the opening of his gospel, that Jesus is God in humanity, okay? He, he is God become a man. And then throughout his gospel, he also wants to link the God of the Old Testament with Jesus. He makes a consistent theme of connecting them. And so he's known for making these I am connections. And, and we're not making this up, okay? So, so the name... That, that, that's used, Yahweh, that, that gets in the, in the verbal form is I am. He's connecting it together. And this happens multiple times. I'm going to give you a couple instances. In John chapter 8, as, as the, the Jews are questioning Jesus, they say to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, you have to imagine they're laughing at him. We all know Abraham. You're not even 50. How could you possibly have known him? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There he uses 
That phrase, I am, I, I, I exist, I'm the one who is. And how do we know that that was offensive? Because of the reaction of the Jewish leadership. That, that they connected in their minds that he just connected himself to Yahweh. He just said, I'm him. And their reaction was, now you're going to die. Now, now that is something that we're going to kill you for. Then later on, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, as they come to arrest him, it, it, it's um, in the garden in John chapter 18, he wants us to see that, that um, the, the God of the Old Testament is about to go to the cross, right? So they answered him. Who are they looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who portrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They just encountered God in the flesh. The God who puts people on their faces. Their reaction demonstrates the power in the name of God. He says, I am. I am the God of the covenant with the children of Israel. Now, Paul also is very intentional in connecting Jesus with Yahweh. In Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, there's likely a, a familiar verse for you, but, but scholars believe that, that Paul is actually quoting an early hymn based on Isaiah chapter 45. And in Isaiah chapter 45, in particular there, it's Yahweh describing himself. And it's a very monotheistic kind of statement that, that Yahweh is God, right? Like, I am the one God. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, this is Yahweh speaking when it says, By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's Yahweh talking about himself. And so what did those early hymn writers take and rewrite that as? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They connected Yahweh with Jesus. This is a first century view of Jesus, that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And so if you want to translate that, you could say it this way, right? All translated out. Yahweh, right? In the flesh. So if Jesus is, Yahweh is salvation, we could say that, that Yahweh is salvation is Yahweh in the flesh. That's how we could say that. Or, I, I will be who I will be is salvation, and I will be who I will be, right? <laughs> like, 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 they're the same. It's, there's not a difference. So I want you to hear what um, Christopher Wright, we've been using his uh, Exodus commentary through this series, and he does a connection of Jesus and Yahweh in the Old and New Testament that's better than I can do. So I know this is a long quote, but... The four greatest dimensions of the transcendent uniqueness of Yahweh God in the Old Testament are all affirmed about Jesus in the New. 
Yahweh alone and supremely, according to multiple scriptures, is the creator of the whole universe, the sovereign governor of the history of all nations, the ultimate judge of all humanity, and the only savior of all who turn to him. Every one of those great functions of the living God of the faith of Israel is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus Christ does, has done, and will do what only Yahweh can do. That makes what we read about here in Exodus Exodus totally applicable to us. The character of Yahweh that we see revealed in Exodus is the character of Jesus revealed in the new. And, and, And the name itself demonstrates his power and presence that that he is powerful to save and he is present with those who he saves. That is true about Yahweh. That is true about Jesus. And so as we look to this week, as we look to heading into this week, I want to encourage you to keep reading the story. I know this past week was hard. I know that when it comes to reading about a law code, that that is difficult. And I wish I could say, hey, it gets easier this week. It does not get easier this week. We switch now and we read about tent diagrams. And, and I, we want you to pay attention to, to what's going on there. That as you're reading architectural instructions, that can be difficult, especially if you can't visualize. If you can visualize, listen and visualize it as it's being, as it's being read to you. It can be hard. But what we're doing is we're building foundation that over the next year, we're going to work our way all the way through Exodus. And then we come to talking about the tent of meeting, the tabernacles. We talk about those things. It's important that we would have a foundation. So it's not like, what are you talking about? That we would be familiar with the grand story of God. That's something that we're called to. And so you don't need to know the details. You just need to know the big picture at this point. Just read for the big picture. What we're going to do now, though, is, is an encounter with the God of the Bible requires a response. We see that as Moses encounters God, he's responding, and, and he begins with some questions, and God's okay with those questions. They kind of fall off the ledge, but he begins in this place of saying, help me understand. And so maybe that's where you find yourself. You find yourself in a place of saying, I, I don't know that I've, I've placed my faith or I've placed my trust in Jesus. There's, there's no greater question that you would ask is, who is Jesus and how have I responded to him? If Jesus is the God of the scriptures in the flesh and he's the only way to a right relationship with God, which is what he claims about himself, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through me. When he makes that claim, the question is, have you embraced that claim? Have you put your trust fully in that truth? If you haven't, we're going to give you an opportunity. So Today, in a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to ask the question, have I placed my trust in Jesus? We're going to ask that question. And then for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, we're going to ask him a a second question, and that is to ask Jesus, where are you calling me to trust your power and presence? Where are you calling me to trust your power and presence in my life today? Not leaving the stuff of real life out in the parking lot, but bringing it right here into this space with you and saying, okay, where am I going to trust your power and presence, what I have going in my life in a real way today? 
So what we're going to do is I'm going to give those of you who, who are like, I'm ready. I need to trust Jesus. I've been trying to fix my life on my own, and I realize I can't do that, that I... I realize that I need an intermediary. I need someone to stand in my place before a perfect and holy God. I need Jesus. I need to place my trust in Jesus. We're going to give you a chance to pray. And then what we're going to do is we're all going to ask this second question. So I'm going to ask you everywhere to go ahead and and bow your heads. And if you, today, you're you're ready to, to place your trust in Jesus, you can pray this with me. Father, I have trusted myself and I recognize that that my brokenness can never be made whole apart from the work of Jesus in my life that he can make me a new creation in him and so today I place my trust in Jesus and I accept the forgiveness that only he can give that I might have new life in his name. If you just pray that, we'd love to know. There's a, on the front of your bulletin, there's a connection card. If you could just put your name and on the back, there's a, I pray to receive Jesus today. Could you, if you would check that and let somebody know, that would be such an encouragement because we would love to be an encouragement to you. And now let's focus in on asking Jesus this question, all of us. Where are you calling me to trust your power and presence. Father, we're so grateful that you've revealed to us who you are and that you've revealed that that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And through your your presence uh, of your Holy Spirit in us, we can know that we know that we have new life in him. And so we're so grateful for the life that only you can give and we praise you now for it. I invite you to go ahead and stand. In all of our venues, go ahead and stand as we worship.